you've probably by now, uh, I would assume by now, you have seen the, um, I guess I'd call it an ad campaign. Uh, he gets us. Everybody's seen the He Gets Us ads on TV. They're all, I mean, if you watch sporting events, you can't miss it. Um, you know, I think if you watch the NFL, there's probably two or three of those ads every hour, it seems like. Um, I think the campaign started up back in maybe October, I want to say. And if you're not that familiar with it, the, the gist of it is the, the, the ads are um, these sort of these black and white photos that, um, you know, images that will appear on the screen. And it's, it's modern day current images, usually some sort of social struggle or conflict that's going on. And the whole, the whole idea behind the, the ads is, you know, Jesus gets us. Jesus was a man, and so Jesus knows exactly what, uh, you know, what we are going through, what we are experiencing. Um, if you dig a little deeper into what that ad campaign is really about, you'll find that it's not such a rosy, uh, it, it's not a good way to, to try to uh, attract people to Jesus, because that's exactly what they're trying to do. They, 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 what they're doing is they're creating what I would call the attractional Jesus. You know, it, 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 somehow Jesus needs a makeover. And if we can just put him into current situations that we relate to, that people will, will take an interest in Jesus. But there's a huge problem with that whole campaign. And it, it's, I mean, in a nutshell, it is that they have put a hyper focus on the humanity of Jesus a hyper-focus on the humanity of Jesus to the exclusion of his deity. Nowhere in any of those ads, nowhere on their website, nowhere on their materials, if you go there, are you going to find anything that talks about or refers to Jesus as being God. It's all about the humanity and the human side of Jesus. And that's actually intentional. Um, they did not want to focus or talk about the divinity of Jesus, because you know, once you talk about the divinity of, of Jesus and, and Jesus being fully God, well, that brings all kinds of things. And, you know, you gotta you gotta deal with sin and our separation from Him and our need for a Savior, and that's not what they're wanting. You know, we we want to completely humanize Jesus, and that will attract people to Him. So it's a, a huge problem with this with this campaign, because that, you know, at, at the end of the day, what are you, what is it you're attracting them to? You know, if I'm attracting you to, to a human Jesus who's only a man and he's not fully God, why do I care anything about this guy named Jesus? What's he going to do for me? If he was just a man and that was it, then what, what's the point? So a huge problem with that. It, it was, um, you know, it's interesting. When I was preparing for tonight and, and kind of working through my outline, I had sort of focused in on using this as sort of a launching point for us, for what we're going to be talking about tonight. And I walked in from my office last night, and as I walked in the house, I got a, my, my phone beamed. I had a text message from my daughter, uh, my daughter Charlotte, who goes to school over in Boca Raton. And she was asking me a question, and she said, Dad, what is everything that is wrong with the He Gets Us ad campaign? Um, she said, 
I, I was watching a video on YouTube, and there was a guy who says he's a Christian, um, who said that you know it's it's perfectly fine, everything is is fine with it. And I, you know, I kind of have to credit her. Charlotte, of, of all of our kids, Charlotte's probably the most perceptive. Um, she's the the one that really pays close attention to little to little details. She had picked up early on in this that there was a problem with that whole he gets us. That there was a the, the the focus was not on what it should be or it wasn't complete. Um, and I think that's important for us to to pay attention to to understand. There are churches, there are denominations, there are denominational leaders, there are church leaders um, who are teaching. And what they're teaching is not the Jesus of the Bible. They're not, you know, they're, they're, they're teaching in a way that is, is attempting to make Jesus somehow something that he's not in Scripture. Because if we make him something he's not and we create him, we can shape him into something that you know, that the world will accept. Um, and we need, to be, we need to be aware of that. We're going to talk about that a little bit tonight as we go through our Scripture passages. And we've got three, three pretty big chunks of Scripture we're going to be looking at. Three major questions that we're going to deal with uh, in that. The first is going to be from Matthew chapter 16. That's where we're going to start. If you want to go ahead and turn there. Uh, and the first question is, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? And from there, we'll, uh, we'll jump over to John chapter 5, and we'll deal with our next big question, which is who does he say that he is? And then we'll, we'll close out in John chapter 10 and just kind of talk about what, what difference does it really make? What, what difference does it make who he says he is? Um, and so that's, that's kind of where we're going to go tonight. But we're going to start out in Matthew chapter 16, who do you say Jesus is? And if you'll, if you'll bear with me as we go through this, some of these passages are pr pretty large. Um, rather than reading the whole passage, I'm going to break it up into chunks for us as we, as we go through there. This first one, we'll, we'll read the whole thing. It's a little bit shorter, but um, I, I think you'll be fine with it as we as we do this. So Matthew chapter 16, we're going to look at verses 13 through 17. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So a little, little context for us, the, the, where we are in, in this setting. We're, we're told that we're in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Um, and, and, and the location, both, both from a geographic perspective, but also sort of ministry-wise, it, it's going to have some relevance as we get into the dialogue back and forth here between Jesus and his, and his uh, followers. Um, but this, this area, Caesarea Philippi, um, was, it, it was close to Dan, where, where Dan was in, in the Promised Land. It was actually 
really the northernmost area, northernmost region of the promised land. And if you sort of think about the promised land and you think about your Old Testament history and what and who is out there around them, um, these are pagan peoples, pagan nations that are all around this area. And there was a heavy influence of paganism in this particular area. It's not like they had the Great Wall of China over there that they built to keep those people out. So there's, there's a, lot of, uh, a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of, um, a lot of influence from, from paganism there uh, heavily. In fact, the, the original name of this village was not Caesarea Philippi. It was Pania, or Panias, I think. It was named after the Greek god Pan. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't Google Pan. I was a little concerned of what I might find if I'm Googling a Greek god. Um, all I needed to know was that this was a, a pagan god, a false god that, uh, that this region had been originally named for. Um, it was given later on by Caesar Augustus, and we know Caesar Augustus. This is the, the pagan emperor of the pagan empire, Rome. And, when, you know, of course, we know what we know about Caesar and, and Rome. He gave the region to Herod the Great. We know about Herod the Great, our you know, New Testament. Um, you know, we know all about him. He was also a pagan. He was not a follower of, of God, of the one true God, just because he was the ruler in, uh, in Judah, in Palestine, does not mean that he was a follower. He was not. He was, a, he was also a pagan. He actually built a temple to the god Pan in this area. Um, later gave the region to his son, Philip the Tetrarch, another pagan, who then renamed the area Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea, after Caesar, give honor and glory to Caesar, Philippi to give honor and glory to himself. So that, that's sort of the region uh, geographically that we're in. And, and so Jesus is leading his followers into this area after um, he, he's, been, he's been healing. Uh, the, the Pharisees and the scribes have been, uh, by now they've been harassing him. They've wanted a sign. You know, if you are who you say you are, give us a sign. So he, he's dealt with that. He's just fed the, the 4,000. Uh, as they're coming into this area. And so it, it's sort of into this, if you think of the timeline and the arc of his ministry, and then where we are geographically, that's where he's leading his followers into. And so it's, it's sort of this crossroads of paganism, very worldly, very secular influences on the one hand, and Judaism on the other. And that's where he's, that's where he's leading these, these followers, the twelve, in here. Um, and he challenges them with some very crucial questions. And that's what we see uh, right there beginning in verse 13. He asks them to consider, he's got two questions for them. Uh, he asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? So first question, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? He's using this reference, Son of Man, in relation to himself. This is actually one of, I believe this might be the most common reference he uses to himself, as Son of Man. It actually appears in uh, Scripture, I think 80 times in reference to him. So it's a very common reference for him, and it refers back to Daniel chapter 7, and the vision that Daniel had. Daniel wrote in Daniel 7, 
chapter 13, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So you've got this, this end times vision of Daniel, of this son of man, this one like a son of man, who is the rescuer that is coming. And he's been, he's been given a, an eternal dominion, this everlasting kingdom to rule all people. This was a clear reference that, that Jesus is making here to himself and calling himself the Son of Man. He's, he's clearly referring to himself as the Messiah, the one who was to come. And it would have been an unmistakable reference for the people. They would have clearly understood this to be a claim of Messiahship by him. And so who are the people that we're talking about here? We're not talking about the religious leaders. You know, when he's asking, who, what, what did the people Say, who do the people say the Son of Man is? He's not talking about the scribes or the Pharisees. Um, he's not particularly concerned with what they think about him. He's he's more referring to the the lay people, sort of the you know the common um, you know the average Jew that had been following him and 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 watching and, and seeing what had happened. And the the reason he's asking this question, the purpose of it, is not because he is unaware of what their opinion is. I mean, he's fully God and fully man. He, he certainly knows what they think about him. Um, he's not asking, he's not, you know, he's not pulling up to his disciples and saying, hey, Robert, you know, what are those people saying about me over there? You, what are you hearing? That's not what he's doing. Um, he, he, he's trying to push his disciples and challenge them to think about not so much what they say about him, but why? Why is it that they believe what they believe about him? Um, and of course, what do they say? You know, he's, some are saying he's John the Baptist. He's come back to life. He's, um, he's Elijah. Elijah, of course, was the, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets as far as the Jews were concerned. Uh, maybe he's Jeremiah or he's just one of the other, one of the other prophets who's, who's risen. Again, the common element in all of that in their opinion of him, was that Jesus was merely a forerunner. He was a precursor of the one to come. So they, while they recognized the, the supernatural power in the miracles, and they, they recognized the supernatural power in the teachings, I mean, no one has ever taught with the authority that Jesus has before or since you know, certainly they, they, they clearly are recognizing that, and they come as close as they can to ultimate truth, and yet they just aren't willing to accept the reality, uh, the truth, or the implications of who he really was. Um, and it's, you know, you think about it today, it's not that different today. You know, what, what do people say about Jesus today? Uh, he's, he's a good teacher. Um, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's a, that's a, great, that's a great principle to, to live your life by. Um, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's great. These are great teachings. He, he, was a, he was a great teacher. He was a great leader. I mean, they say that about him. I mean, you know, he started out this, this movement in some backwater outpost in the Middle East 
And here we are a couple thousand years later and there's still people following him. He was a, he was a good leader. So a good teacher, a good leader. Uh, you know, a great healer. You know, medical miracles. He, he, people who couldn't walk, walked. People who couldn't see, saw. You know, he's, he's a great healer. But God? No, he's not God. He's, he's just a man. Um, there's a, a survey that was done, uh, let's see, 2022. Um, the State of Theology survey. And I don't know who, I don't know which group puts this out or does the survey. Um, it, it's, a, it's not Legionnaire, it, it's not Barna, I, I can't remember who does it, but it's, you can Google it, State of Theology survey for 2022. Don't Google it now. Just wait until, wait until we're done here. But the, um, the, the aim of the survey, and, and it's done every two years, so they're looking at results every two years, is to look for trends in the, the, the spiritual beliefs of, first of all, Americans, adult Americans, but then a subset of that, evangelicals. So those are really the two groups that they're looking at. And so every couple of years, they're asking, you know, what do they believe about God? What do they believe about salvation? What do they believe about the Bible? And the, there is a particular question they asked that indicated, indicates a, what I think ought to be a disturbing trend. Um, they asked this question. Do you agree or disagree with the statement Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. <coughs> now, the 2020 response, and th this particular question was focusing in more on the evangelicals. And the 2020 results, 30% of evangelicals agreed with that statement, that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Now, that's, that's nearly a third of evangelicals. And we're talking about evangelicals. Who are we talking about? We're talking about the people that most of the time, when you think of evangelicals, you think, uh, you know, these are the people who would call themselves Christian. These are the people who, um, you know, they, they, they certainly probably have at least one of these in their home. Um, you know, these are the people you would expect to find in church pews on, on Sunday mornings. Nearly a third in 2020 agreed with the statement that Jesus was a good teacher, but he wasn't God. 2022, it was 43%. That's almost half. Almost half of evangelicals, people who would identify themselves as being Christian, say Jesus was not God. They deny the deity of, of Jesus. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's one thing for us to be aware of those trends Certainly, we're brokenhearted over that when we hear it. We're concerned about it. But more than just sort of wringing our hands over it, I, I think we need to ask why. You know, how do we get to a point where 43, almost half of people who identify as evangelicals deny that Jesus was God? Um, and I, I think there's... To me, I think there's two reasons. The survey doesn't they don't give us any reasons. There's no follow-up or anything. But I think there's two, to me, two clear reasons. Actually, one, and then the other one, I think, flows directly from that. The first is that this is not being taught in our churches. Not enough. Um, 
You know, there, there, there's too many churches that are focused on, you know, topical or cultural, what, what they think are culturally significant. You might as well call them speeches. I don't know if you'd call them sermons, but this is not being taught enough. It's not being taught enough in our, in our Sunday school or life group classes or small group settings. And if, if this is not being taught, by the way, that same survey, 26% of evangelicals did not believe that this was literally true. Go figure that. But if we're not teaching this, and this is what, this is where we find out who Jesus says he is, well, we shouldn't be surprised when you've got so many saying Jesus is not. You know, he's a great teacher, a great man, a great leader, but he's not God. Um, so that's, uh, again, it, it is surprising and it should not be. But it's into this that, that Jesus then asks the, the, really the question of questions. You know, he's dealt with, you know, what do the people say? And he's, he, he's prodded his, his followers, the 12, to think about why they're saying that. But now it's the question of questions. Who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, oh, goodness, thank you, Simon Peter. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So Peter, unequivocally, you are the Christ. You are the long-awaited Deliverer, the anointed one, the high priest, the, the king of kings, the, the savior. You know, the, the people might have equivocated on who he was and, and um, not been willing to accept his, his own claims, but Peter certainly does not. He, he declares unequivocally Jesus is the Messiah. This is the same declaration that his brother Andrew had made to him. Andrew, after meeting Jesus, goes and gets his brother Peter, and he declares to Peter that this, this is the Son of God. Uh, Nathaniel, after he has been called by Jesus, declares this is the Son of God. This is the King of Israel. Uh, John the Baptist had, had testified that he was the Son of God. So, clear, unequivocal declaration of who Jesus is. His deity, you are the Christ. Um, and yet, the answer from Peter is still somewhat odd when you think about who these men were, the, these Jewish men raised on Judaism from, from the time they were small, they would have been raised to expect a very different type of Messiah than the one who is now standing before Peter asking this question. Um, they would have been taught of a, this conquering hero that would one day come, this, uh, this warrior king, a, a new David, and so that would have been their, their expectation. And yet here we have Jesus, meek and mild, this, this meek, gentle, very humble servant is, is who is now being declared by Peter to be the Christ, the Messiah. And so this time uh, that, that Jesus has spent with them over these last nearly two years now, I think by this point of his ministry, um, there are no doubts that they have as to who he is. You are the Christ. He also says you are the son of the living God. Now, we think back to the setting, Caesarea Philippi, where we are. Very pagan region, uh, very pagan influences, um, named after dead men, temples to 
false gods that have been built and, and put into this place. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Son of the living God. Peter's declaring him as the creator of all. Uh, that This is the one true, real God. Not just a little g God. This is the living God. Um, not one of these fake wannabe gods that the, the people of this region may have, may have worshipped. So verse 17, look at the consequence of this declaration, this, this confession by Peter. Jesus says, uh, verse 17, first part of verse 17, he answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. In 1 John chapter 4, uh, it says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Paul writes in chapter 1 of Ephesians, uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as, though, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. This confession, you are the Christ, the consequence of that, of that declaration, of that confession, is eternal blessing. That's what, that's what Jesus has, has, has uh, declared here to, to Peter. And that's what Scripture testifies to as well. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. But the source of that blessing, he says, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Uh, this revelation, this reality of who he is. Um, for me, I think one of the struggles that, that I had, particularly early on in my faith walk, um, and some of you may be able to relate to this, um, uh, it was a struggle with intellectualism. Uh, I'm, I'm very academic. I, you know, I like to read. I love to study. So you know, reading books, reading articles, and you know, and just sitting down and studying and trying to think my way through problems. That's just kind of how I'm wired. Um, you know, my job is even related to that, just kind of trying to think my way through, through different problems. And that's a good thing. And that's a positive thing to, you know, to love study, to love, uh, you know, the, the, the intellect and, 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 you know, what you can think about and problems you can solve. But it's also uh, kind of a double-edged sword because the, the danger is particularly when it comes to matters of faith, is believing that somehow if I just studied enough, I can think my way to understanding it all. You know, I, I, in, my, in my mind, I can have it all make sense if I just read it and think about it and study it enough. Um, Jesus tells Peter, flesh and blood is not what has revealed this to you. It's my Father. See, the, the 12 were not convinced of his Messiahship or his deity um, because of his teachings or because of his miracles, that's not what convinced them. And you got to remember, the people saw the same miracles, heard the same teachings, and yet they had not believed. Um, witnessing miracles and, and hearing the teachings never convinced anyone of the truth. Jesus says it's the Father. 
The Father himself is who reveals this. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly, they're foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. There's no record of any divine revelation to the apostles, to the twelve. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is who opens minds and opens hearts to, to see Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of the living God. So who do you say he is? That's our first major question. And every human, every man, every woman, is going to be confronted with that same question. You're going to be forced to answer it. So let's look at our, our next big question. Who does he say that he is? And we're going to jump over to John chapter 5. So I'll give you just a, just a second to turn over there. I guess it would help if I turned there too, since I'm the one reading it. John chapter 5, and we're going to be focusing on verses 17 through 24. And this is where I'm going to start to break, break this in chunks rather than reading the whole passage just to, to help us get, get through this. So uh, we're going to look first at verses 17 and 18. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, a little background here for where this passage falls. The the first 16 verses of this chapter, it's this um, encounter Jesus has with the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. Um, So that's this, uh, you know, he he asked the man, do you want to be healed? Um, Tells the man, you know, rise up. Stand up, take up your mat, walk, go. Man uh, has been healed. And this absolutely infuriates the religious leaders. The scribes and the Pharisees are incredibly furious with this. You know, we have rules. We have laws. And their accusation against him is, you have broken our laws. We have laws about the Sabbath. And, And his defense is interesting because he doesn't really address their, accu- their specific accusation that you've broken the law. He, he, he sort of goes over and above that. And the gist of his defense is, is basically this. And, and this, is, this is Sam interpreting this and, and saying this. His defense is, I'm God, so I can do whatever I want to do. And that's really how he, how he responds here. I'm God, so I can do whatever I want. And in this defense, in this as the root of how he addresses them, there's some pretty crystal clear uh, claims that he makes to being equal with God. And the first one we just read in verses 17 and 18, he says he's equal to God in his person. Now remember, who was the Sabbath for? Who had the Sabbath been created for? Us. Yeah, us. wasn't created for God. Um, but the, the, the Jews, and particularly the religious leaders, and you know, looking back and studying over the creation account, you know, 
God rested on the seventh day. Now, God's rest is not exactly the same as our rest, is it? Uh, what God had done was he had, um, in, in, in declaring that seventh day, you know, resting on the seventh day, he, he sets that as an example for us. He sets it aside. It's to be a memorial for us. He created in the first six days. He didn't get exhausted creating. I mean, you think about all that he did. You know, created the sun. I mean, the sun's pretty big. That seems like that would take a lot of effort, but it's not a lot of effort for God. He creates billions and billions of stars. He creates, uh, you know, land and, and, and water and sky and animals and vegetation. and um, It's a lot of work. God didn't get tired from his work. And so when he rests on the seventh day, it's not because he's tired and he needs to go take a nap. His work is complete. The work of creation has been completed in six days, and he is now setting aside that seventh day as an example, as a memorial for us. And the Jews, were, they were well aware of this. Hebrews 1.3 says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So, I mean, they... They acknowledged and knew of this unceasing work that God continued to do in his creation. So Jesus here, uh, right off the bat in John chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, he claims to be equal with God in his person, an unmistakable claim. Verses 19 and 20. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. He makes a claim to be equal to God here in His works. So not just in His person, but He's equal in His works. Truly, truly, this is a phrase that we see and, and, and hear Jesus repeat often. Um, and and it's, it, it's a declaration really to ensure that you don't misunderstand what it is that he's saying. So he's made a claim that he's equal to God in his person. Now to make sure, he, he's doubling down on that claim. No mistake in what he has said. And now he, he adds to that, he's, he's equal to God in his person. And, and so there's this unity of, of the works of the Son with the works of, of the Father. His works parallel the works of the Father. Um, John chapter 12, verse 45, to see Christ's work is to see the Father's work. Um, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And let's think about what God has been doing, continuing to do with His with his creation. When the, when the creation account was given by Moses, written by Moses, um, the original hearers would have understood, very clearly understood this idea of a, of a good king and how a good king provides and takes care of his people in comparison to a bad king. They were, they were surrounded by bad kings at that time. Uh, the, the, the pagan kings had plenty of examples of that. A good king is one who you know, provides for his people, um, sustains his people, nourishes his people, loves his people, protects his people. A bad king destroys and hates and abuses and, and uses. So they were well aware of that. And you know, as we saw in that, that verse from Hebrews, 
God has continued that original work of, of, of sustaining and nurturing and loving and caring for uh, his people and his, his creation. And so Jesus is saying here, you know, what, what the Father has already been doing, I'm doing that. I'm continuing that. So whatever the Father does, that's what the Son does also. So he's equal in his works. Verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Uh, When I was growing up, my dad was, to me, he was the strongest, most powerful man on the planet. Um, Now, you look at me, and I'm built a lot like my dad. So I'm probably 160, okay, maybe 165 pounds dripping wet. That's how he's built. You know, not Arnold Schwarzenegger here, but to me, he was. He, you know, he, he was powerful. He was strong. And as I grew up, I watched him and I learned from him. Um, I, I, I saw how he acted and treated other people, how he loved me, how he loved my sisters, my mom. Um, and now today, that's me. You know, the, the, what, what my dad had done, that's what, that's what I do. For those of us who grew up in the South, particularly the Deep South, you'll, you'll know this, um, we have family reunions. I don't know if we still have family reunions. Anybody been to a family reunion lately? Do they still do those? Yeah, we used to do those every year, and it was, it was always awkward because it would be, you know, 100 people, and if you're a kid, you don't know any of them. These are distant cousins and relatives, and in the South, that meant, you know, big buffet long tables and a lot of congealed salad. And for those of you who know what congealed salad is, you don't need a lot of that on a table. You really don't need any of it on a table. Um, but it, it never failed that, you know, I'd go to these and the, 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 some aunt who I'd never met, probably would never see again, would remark to me, oh, you look just like your dad. You are so much like Bill. You're just like him. Um, only God had the power to raise the dead. And yet, here Jesus is making the claim that he has that same power. Only God had the power to give eternal life, to give spiritual life. And yet, here's Jesus making that claim as well. And if you flip over to chapter 6, and you see him feeding the 5,000, you go to the very end of that where the people have followed him that next day, and he tells them, He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So, distinct, unmistakable claim of the power to give eternal life. And he's the source of life. You know, Genesis 1, in the beginning. Uh, John 1, in the beginning was the Word. Um, John 1, 4, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. He is the source of life. That's the, that's the reality for, of who he is. So he was equal to God, the Father, in his power and in his sovereignty. Verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now God is the judge of all the earth. But he's, his authority... The authority to grant eternal life, he has given that over to the Son. And the authority to grant eternal life descends from the authority to judge. You know, whoever holds the power of judging 
is the one who holds life or death in his hands. You think about this in the context of a trial and all the evidence comes in. Who is it that is there at the end of that trial with the power, the authority of guilt or innocence, life or death? It's the, it's the judge. Um, and so God has given this authority to Jesus and, and with that, the authority over life and death. That's the, that's the claim that he's made. Verses 23 and 24 he says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. So he's equal to God, he says, in his honor. And of course, the reason is that all authority has been given over to him. And it's not a choice you know, it's not that we can choose to honor God or honor Jesus. It's not an either or. It's both or it's neither. And Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're against me. So there's no middle ground with him. And yes, in Isaiah, he said God will not share his glory. But Paul wrote in Philippians that God has exalted Jesus so that, what? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Um, all will one day declare him to be king. So he's equal in his honor. So what did he say about himself? Unmistakable claims of equality with God. So what difference does any of that really make? Turn over to John chapter 10, and this is where we're going to close tonight. John chapter 10, we're going to be in verses 22 through 42, and I'll break this up for us so that we can handle it a little bit easier. So 22 through 24, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So it says this is the, the time of this is the Feast of Dedication. Now, Feast of Dedication might not mean a whole lot to you. It's Hanukkah. It's basically what this is. This is the Festival of, of Lights. And context puts us in the winter time. At this particular time of the year, the weather would have been bad. So Jesus is walking in the colonnade probably to stay out of some of the nasty weather. And we have this contingent of what we're told are Jews Unlike the Jews that are referenced back in Matthew chapter 16, these are the religious leaders. And it says they gathered around him. But they, they gather around him. It, it's a gathering with attitude. You know, this is not, you know, they're sort of walking along beside him and, you know, hey, Jesus, I've been meaning to ask you a couple of questions. They, they surround him uh, very aggressively as, as well. And they ask him this question. You know, if you're who you say you are, you know, if you're who you say you are, um, then you know, how, you know, don't keep us in suspense. Tell us plainly. And they're not interested in his answer. They don't really care what the reason is. They want him to declare, as he had previously, we just saw in John chapter 5, that he, you know, he is the Son of God, the Son of the living God, the Christ, so that they can then arrest him and be done with him. So it's a trap that they think they're setting for Jesus here. But notice his claim that he makes in verses 25 through 31. 
Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Two times he says, you do not believe. You do not believe. You do not believe. Now why does he do that? You know, you think of you know, modern day, not that terribly different. Um, I guess he's sort of back in the news now. Andy Stanley, he seems to get himself in the news for the, the wrong reasons. I, I think I saw where he, I don't know if it was a sermon that he had delivered. Um, I think it was recently, uh, where he refused to declare homosexuality as a sin. Um, and I, I think his I think what he said, in fact, was Christians need to be more like homosexuals. Now, this, of course, with him is coming off of a couple of years ago where he wanted to unhitch us from the Old Testament, you know, the pesky Old Testament. We don't, we don't need that. Um, how many, I'm kind of looking around, how many people in here brought one of these with them, hard copy? And if you didn't bring one, how many have at least one at home? Hard copy, Bob. All right. And how many people have one of these? Yeah, so we have a hard copy edition of the Bible translation. Mine is the ESV translation. We have smartphones where we can find any translation that you want. I think I use one of the Bible apps. It's got a whole bunch of them listed in there. So I can get any translation I want any time. Um, I can also access really good resources, whether it's Legionnaire ministries or got questions uh, bible.org those are some some good resources so i've got access to um to bibles truth resources to help me in my study of that truth um, the issue today whether it's andy stanley or others is not different from the issue back then that we're just reading about um, it's it's not that there's an insufficient access to the truth. That's not the issue. The issue is a refusal to believe and to accept the truth that has been plainly and clearly presented. So it's not that they had not seen who he was. It's not that they had not been taught who he was. It's that having been taught and having seen, they simply refused to acknowledge the reality and truth of who he, who he was. And so this claim that he makes, this claim about his sheep that he references, um, this is a huge, major difference. When we talk about what difference does it make, what he says about himself or who he says that he is, this is a major difference because he's talking about eternal security of the believer here. He says that believers are his sheep. If, we're, if we are believers, if you are a believer, in Christ, you belong to him. You're one of his sheep. He says that believers hear only his voice and they follow only him. I saw a, um, 
uh, a video. I think it was a couple months ago. It was making the rounds on YouTube. It, it may have been on, um, oh, not, not the Babylon Bee, the other one. Not the Bee? may have been on there. But it was a, it, it, I think it was in the UK somewhere, and it was a shepherd. And there were, there were I think, several shepherds. And there's this huge field, all of these sheep out in this field grazing. And you've got this one guy, older gentleman, standing over by a gate and opens the gate up, and he calls out some, I don't know what he said. I mean, it was unintelligible for a human, I think. But as soon as he said it, these sheep just come running to the sound of that voice, and they begin entering that pen where he stood and had called them and opened. And there were other shepherds standing around talking, but it wasn't their voice they came to. It was the voice of their shepherd, the voice of their master. And I thought that was awesome when I, you know, when I saw that. You know, what, a, what a picture of what Jesus is saying here, that you know, believers hear his voice and hear only his voice and follow only him. He says that he gives them eternal life. If he is the source of that eternal life, it's not ours to give away or take away. It's not, you know, it's not Satan's to, to take away. It's his. He's the one who has given it to us. He says they will never perish. He says no one is powerful enough to snatch them from his hand. So whatever false shepherd or false prophet is out there, the, the work of Satan, no one is powerful enough to snatch the believers, his sheep, from his hand. And he says those in his hand are in the hand of the Father. There's this, this unity of, of purpose between the Father and the Son. This is a, a joint guarantee of Father and Son to the security of those who believe and who, who follow. Um, so, you know, there's, there's his claim. Look in verses 32 and 33 at this charge, though, that they now make. Let's see. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Now remember, they've picked up stones after he has gone through this, you know, my sheep, my sheep. Um, so they picked up these stones. So for which of these uh, works are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. What was the purpose of of the miracles, of the works of Jesus. What was the intent behind those works? That, that they would know what? Yeah. Identify him as the one with the authority. Identify him clearly as being uh, the son of God, the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, and, and it's interesting, too, you know, if you look at his answer here, he, he, he asks them, uh, you know, for, for which, and I have shown you many good works from the Father. So he gets in yet another sort of zinger in there, you know, uh, again, declaring these, these works, the works I do, they're the works of, of the Father. But the heart of the matter is still the heart of the matter. And what Jesus does here is he forces them to deal with the real issue, because the issue is not the works. They don't have an issue with his works. The issue is their love of their own sin. 
the, the problem they have are with his claims of oneness and unity and equality with the Father. So that's the charge they've, they've now made. And so he issues a challenge back to them. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. So he appeals to the law here. Um, actually invokes the law. Their own law had used this term gods in referring to, uh, in referring to others, in referring to, to judges. And what he's actually saying in this is uh, kind of tying back, a reference back to what we read earlier in Matthew chapter 16, where he had asked the question, what do the people say about the Son of Man? Who do they say the Son of Man is? And of course their response was, hey, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. He's a man. Well, here Jesus is saying, no, I'm, I'm not merely a man. I'm not just a prophet. He, he sets himself apart. He sets himself out as being more than just a man. He is, in fact, one with the Father. He is God. And so what's the consequence of this? Uh, verses 39 through 42. Again, they sought to arrest him. But he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So his, his works, his words, his claims about himself all pointed very clearly, unmistakably, to Jesus as the Son of God, as equal with God, as one with the Father. And so what difference does it make, what he has said about himself? Well, what does it say in verse 42? It says, many believed. Many believed in him there. The people flock to him there, just as they had flocked to John the Baptist earlier. And now they flock, and they recognize that everything John the Baptist had said about him was true. And they believed. So even today, there are many. Doesn't matter what their walk in life is, what their station in life, whether they're a uh, you know a church leader, um, you know they're they're somehow involved in church. But they're just like the the Jewish leaders from the time and the day that we're reading about now. They're offended by Christ's claims of who He was. They're embarrassed about the claims uh, of his that he is, in fact, equal with the Father, that he is God. And it's sometimes surprising to us, it shouldn't be, but it is, that many, so many, who know the truth, they've heard the truth, um, but they love their sin more than they love the truth. And they're just as lost today as these Jewish leaders were back in Jesus' day. But for those who have been drawn to him in repentance and faith, he gives the right to become his own children. So what difference does it make? It makes all the difference in the world. Um, 
but big questions that we, that we had tonight. You know, one that we're all going to answer, and you know, I hope, I pray that you have answered that question uh, unequivocally, declaration like Peter. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. Um, why? Because that's who he tells us that he is. And who he is makes all the difference. Not like this he gets us campaign where, you know, we don't want to talk about or deal with his deity, his divinity, the truth of who he is. And yet that's the difference. That's all the difference. Thank you.